0: The Global Pathways Podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the Pulte Institute for Global Development, an integral part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Pulte Institute works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership, and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at pulte.nd.edu.
1: It's now been 90 days since the initiation of the tumultuous U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. With the Taliban now firmly in control of the country, hundreds of thousands of Afghans are seeking to leave. Those lucky enough to be evacuated are now caught in a complex resettlement process around the world. Activists across the globe are working around the clock, trying to assist those families wanting to leave to secure appropriate documentation and safe passage. Meanwhile, the media has moved on, so the plight of Afghans, both within the country and in transition, has been moved out of the spotlight and into the shadows. Today, I want to devote this podcast to offering a grassroots perspective on these dramatic events in Afghanistan and the terror Afghan refugees, particularly women, are currently facing. Today, my guests are Dr. Suzanne Ejjalber and Sima. Dr. Suzanne Ejjalber is a gender equity advocate, economic development activist, and a women's rights political strategist with more than 25 years of experience. She currently serves as a director in Kimonic Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and Afghanistan region, and previ- previously served as chief of party on the USAID Promote Women in Government project. As a global leader, gender equity advocate, and economic development implementer, as well as a women's rights political strategist, Suzanne has lived for decades at the nexus of conflict and economic stabilization and development. She has been working tirelessly with colleagues in recent months to support Afghan refugees to manage the difficult journey from their homeland to the United States, while also staying in close contact with women leaders both within and outside Afghanistan, monitoring events as they unfold. Seema, who's with us this morning, has a bachelor's degree in business administration. She held a position with USAID's Promote Women in Government Project, and has over a decade of experience in managing complex and large projects in the development sector. A refugee of her homeland, Seema recently arrived in the United States with her two sisters. She has kindly agreed to share the story of her journey with us. A warm welcome to you both. Suzanne, let me start with you, maybe to set the stage for our conversation. Could you offer just some comments about Chemonics history in Afghanistan and your particular leadership role within its programs?
2: I'd be happy to, Ray. And thank you for suggesting this conversation. I really appreciate you putting the spotlight back on Afghanistan and the peril that women live in there right now. Chemonics International has just been incredible in Afghanistan. Over the last 20 years, they have managed and implemented and completed more than 26 projects. Now today, they still are running three current projects. So that means there are hundreds of employees that still want our attention and assistance to evacuate. So from my side, I managed one task order the largest USAID funded women's empowerment projects that was around 310 million dollars. My project was USAID promote women in government, we call it affectionately WIG, and of course it was implemented by Commonics International. Our staff numbers totaled 204, our interns that enrolled in our one-year program totaled 3901, and the spotlight's important because staff and interns remain in country in hiding from the Taliban and waiting for an opportunity to move to a safer country.
1: So, I, as you've mentioned, I promote is the largest investment ever made by the US government in women's education and empowerment anywhere in the world. Quite extraordinary to think about that. Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about the many goals and dimensions of that particular program. What what was it able to achieve and and how much did women, you know, how how much did we, was it possible for women to penetrate, you know, to to government positions at a reasonable level?
2: Yeah, great, great question. We had in total over 21 indicators, but they were framed around three overarching goals. So first was to facilitate entry into decision-making roles in the government. And second, was to encourage an hospitable environment for female staff again in the government and then third was to increase local stakeholder support for women in civil service so you know you could also look at that as support for women working in general our final outcomes were were quite phenomenal so i already mentioned the number that were enrolled but actually graduated were 3059 we were able to employ 1,778. The stakeholder piece is important. There was an 8% increase in stakeholder acceptance of women working. So when you talk about trying to move acceptance of women socially, this was actually a huge jump over a period of time. And then we've talked about policies in the past. The program was able to change, adopt 15 specific governmental policies that related to women in the government, working in the government.
1: So maybe you could just provide a few illustrations of like what kinds of positions the women would be taken into and how they what sort of authority they might have over programs yeah. in different parts of the country. Some of them might be regional and some of them might be at the at the federal level, but it'd be interesting just to see kind of what sorts of things people were doing.
2: Yeah, it it was fascinating watching the different directions that they went, whether it was into finance or human resources or into city management or provincial management. I mean, when you think about almost 1,800 women moving into the government, it's it's just phenomenal. So in Herat, we had a young woman that went into human resources. She used the power of her position to change how women were paid. Often women would be brought in only as a part-time employee. She advocated which roles needed to be full-time and then paid at the same pay structure as men. On the provincial level, there were also many women that had law background. So we saw one go into the DA's office and become a prosecutor. In Kabul, we saw young women become a deputy mayor. And and there were other young women that became mayors and other young women that then moved into politics that were running for either provincial or federal positions. It was was fascinating to watch them, whether they moved in at the grassroots level as an administrator in procurement, for example, or whether they moved into more of a mid-level career, and then how they would bring others with them through the process of being employed.
1: You also mentioned a minute ago policies, 15 policies. Really, the durability of a program like this is going to depend on the both the institutions and the policies that support the sort of transition process. What were some of the policies that were put in place that provided specific sorts of conditions mm-hmm. that would allow women to advance in the way you're describing?
2: One policy that flowed both federally and through all of the provinces was on harassment and the elimination of harassment of women in the workplace. That was very difficult to get pushed through. And in the end, it was the Ministry of Women Affairs that took ownership of that policy and then put up all of the details of the policy on their website, as well as a full campaign to end harassment in the workplace. That was exciting, and it was wonderful because we also had some cabinet support for getting that policy through. What's less exciting now is that the Ministry of Women Affairs has been completely disbanded. So whether or not the policies that we put in place will stand going forward as of today is
1: unknown. Yeah, this may be one of the casualties of the transition as, we, as we're talking about it today. Well if you reflect a little bit on all of what happened and even this the subtlety of changing attitudes about women in work what do you think probably are the most significant achievements in advancing women's status and rights in Afghanistan that kind of were maybe you could look back and sort of say you think might might have been a might have durability beyond even the current moment in terms yeah. of people's, people's awareness and people's preferences
2: I think there might be four things that flow through and if we start from the awareness aspect and the increase of percentage of acceptance for women, not just in government, for women working as a whole, I think that's that's one very key piece. And it could be broken down into two parts, the acceptance of women actually entering civil service, but also the social acceptance, more broad based of women working in general, whether it's in the civil service or whether it's owning their own business or whether it's just entering into the private sector and working for an industry. I think those two things are cornerstones of change. The legislative changes are there so maybe they're not being implemented now but women and women activists and male champions recognize that they're in place. So they they could bubble back up to the top as things stabilize. But maybe the biggest thing across the board is the knowledge of women's rights for both men and women.
1: that's that's great. Maybe I'll, maybe just jumping into the issue of women's issues more broadly, I think it might be helpful to those of those unfamiliar with Afghanistan to understand what the status of both rural and urban women were prior to the Russian occupation and the arrival of the Taliban. I think many Americans perhaps have the impression that Afghan women were sequestered away in a medieval world and only emerged after the Taliban were forced out of power. Perhaps you could paint a picture for us of what was it like for women 20 years ago before programs of this sort were undertaken.
2: I'll paint the picture from my perspective, but I hope Seema will also talk about this a little bit more when we come to her story because she lived it and I was a spectator. But 20 years ago, we know that an Afghan woman could be beaten for laughing in public, flogged publicly for being with an unaccompanied male guardian. The Taliban fell in 2001. And then that brought forth the new government that were using, to some degree, women's rights as a forward symbol of progress. That, that was a big plus, because e- even if they didn't know quite how to do it, they verbally said they were trying to do it. So for two decades, then Afghan activists and internationalists like me too, we focused on the many laws, the policies, the strategies, that could be developed that would support women's rights. So for instance, the national action plan for Afghan women was in place, the national strategy for combating violence against women, the right to include mother's names only most recently got adopted so that it would be on the children's national IDs. And there were many, many more. And then August 15th happened and Taliban reasserted full control And we worry hugely, have the gains been lost? This this is where we're stuck right now. I'm listening to the activists in country right now, but their, their voices, though they're trying to be heard, are constantly pushed back down, whether it's at gunpoint or whether it's just by being shoved aside from the place where they're protesting. There's a lot to pay attention to right now.
1: So when we talk about these changes that you were you just describing, were they changes that were affecting just the sort of more urban areas, the women in urban areas, or did they have impact on women in smaller villages in the more remote parts of the country? How, how, how yeah. was this sort of change felt when you got beyond Kabul? Because oftentimes these things can be somewhat cosmopolitan and not necessarily yeah. generally sort of available opportunities for everybody.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you. And and definitely in the larger cities, there was more focus on women's rights, more talk about it, more awareness of it. And and there's so many levels at play in the Afghan society as a whole. You know, besides the different ethnic groups, besides the division of rural and metropolitan areas, there's no access to electricity sometimes no access to mobile phones, no access to radio or television. So as, as you move outside the metropolitan areas, it does become much more problematic to spread the awareness and to really educate about women's rights. We did try to work in all provinces through the PROMOTE program. There were some significant strides made, including the Provincial Women's Council, which elected women from each province to serve on a council to understand what the rights were and to advocate for the things that they specifically wanted to see in their communities. But it's not easy. It's not easily when you're fighting root causes of problems, whether it's decades old disagreements or poverty or lack of resources or hunger, and all of these things come into play for raising the awareness around women's rights.
1: Just to take the rights question for a moment, and we were to look at the, the sort of spectrum of political, civil, economic, social, cultural rights, and we were to sort of ask, for example, simple things like, are, do women have the vote? And do they have the vote at every level? and Or was that something that was new to the government that was in power post-Taliban? What are sort of some of the things that may have a little bit of durability in terms of the rights regime even going forward? Mm-hmm. they do have the right to, to vote. And would, they, would they retain that, though, under the current circumstances?
2: Unlikely. Unlikely. Mm-hmm. They didn't have it in, in the pre-Taliban. I don't think they'll have it in the post-Taliban. But durability. I mean, durability comes to a couple of things that that I mentioned a little bit earlier. So if we look over just my decade of working in Afghanistan and working with Afghans, I would say durability comes down to understanding what women's rights are. Second, more women working and running businesses and entering politics. The attitudinal change that flowed through society about women studying or working or both. And then this one I think is perhaps the most durable and that's the youth movements where they've recognized there was a change they felt it they lived it and they want it
1: yeah no, that that's really a quite a dramatic thing to think about well maybe just let's talk a little bit about how life has changed with the the arrival of the Taliban clearly it's changed dramatically and and what what if we talk from a grassroots perspective what is the transition meant for women, particularly those who assume leadership from government? Those these are obviously women that you have a lot of you've had a lot of contact with, with the arrival of the Taliban in, in Kabul. And the, in the weeks after it's now, I think, 90 days since the, the transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do we know about what's going on with your colleagues in country and how they're whether they're staying or leaving or, and what's their experience?
2: In this instance, I would like to share Amina's story. So Amina was enrolled and graduated through the program and received a prominent role in one of the provinces. And, And this is something that she said to me recently. She said, experiences like mine are normal. And I said, what do you mean experiences like yours? She said, well, I'm first of all referring to being forced into a child marriage. And in my province, that's very common. So most women's experiences are like mine. I had to fight my father, my husband, my brother for education all the way through my bachelor's degree, all the way through Kabul University. And then I had to fight them so that I could get and keep my job. Now what? The Taliban stole it all from me. And that was, that's not the only story. I'm hearing that from our interns and from many of our staff on a daily basis. And sometimes they think I didn't hear them. So they send me the email two or three times. So I have to read it two or three times.
1: <laughs> so for the, you know, for those women who actually got university degrees and, and there was a lot of investment in higher education, I think, in, in Afghanistan, during this period as well, because you needed to create a pipeline of women to come into these roles. Sure. So what's yeah. the, what is the state of play with that, that whole university system that's, that was built up and I think there was even an American university in Afghanistan. Yeah. What's the, you know, what's the future for all of that? Both higher education institutions as well as the American one, and will they endure? And are they are women still going to class, or what, what's happened in that world?
2: I think there's a lot of confusion around education and who can go and how they can go. And following the news stories, what we hear and what we see are disconnected. What we're hearing from the Taliban is that girls and women can go to school. However, it has to follow the rules of Sharia law, or they may say Islamic law. It's very confusing because if you look at the work that we did through women in government, one of our primary products was the work obstacles and analysis Report. That demonstrated very clearly that education locations, work locations are not fair. Look at infrastructure, just infrastructure, not all of the other details. Are there bathrooms? No. Are there separate prayer spaces? Are there separate eating spaces? Are there separate studying places? And the answer to all of those are no. So unless the whole infrastructure issue is resolved, where under Islamic law, men and women are truly separate, then they won't be re-engaging
1: in school or work or civil service. So during this last 20 years, in effect, what infrastructure's in place, the males and females were actually mixing in, in dining rooms and libraries and other facilities and classrooms
2: So yeah, in all places. In some, not all, but that, that was a major finding in our report, that oftentimes both desired that separation, but it simply wasn't available because the infrastructure wasn't built for it.
1: Yeah. Now, just again reflecting a little bit on the women that you you know you helped to, to kind of launch into some of these careers. You know, some of them are in the country. Some of them have left. The ones that are in the country are they on the run? Are they Maybe. at home feeling secure and although out of a job, but, but what, what is the kind of the, what's their experience now? I mean, are are they, are they trying to leave? What's the mixed story? I suppose.
2: It is a mixed story. If, if, if you look at the 204 of our staff who are now principal applicants, very few have gotten out a handful of the Whig staff have gotten out. Even fewer interns have gotten out. And yet I'm bombarded daily by every every sort of mechanism possible from LinkedIn to Facebook to Skype, all the email addresses, they figure out every which way to be able to ask for help. I I want to that you come back to Seema's story about the feeling of fear and how you have to hide and move from place to place. And this is what my team is telling me that they have to do. The frustrating thing is that so many others have gotten out, and many, 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 many men, but somehow development workers have been pushed aside as not as important, not as eminent, which is just it's unjust and crazy to me when you look at how deeply they worked in their communities and how well known they are for being on a U.S. funded project.
1: One of the things that's been remarkable, I think, watching in these in these last weeks is incredibly seeing women leading major demonstrations on the streets of of major cities in in Afghanistan. What can you tell us about what that's about and and about activism inside Afghanistan and the role of women leaders in organizing and participating in these events? It just seems extraordinary to hear that on the one hand, they're being displaced from all these leadership roles, and here they are in the vanguard of parades down the the main street of of Kabul. It's hard to kind of square that. But I wonder what your thoughts are on that.
2: Yeah, it's remarkable to me and so brave, so courageous, knowing what the outcome can be under the rule of Taliban. I really want to reference one woman in particular, although there are many that are working towards activism, but that's Mabuba Shiraj. And Mabuba has been quite an extraordinary voice for the young she recently was interviewed it was a photo, photo journalistic article that i just loved that was who published that the la times if i'm wrong i'll find i'll find the link for you but it was a beautiful photo essay that explained why she decided to stay because she does have a home here in the United States. She went back to Kabul and decided to stay in Kabul so she could help energize, not just what was happening in terms of activism in Kabul, but in the provinces all around. And she's done a masterful job raising her voice, willing to be on CNN and BBC, and now in this new article that just came out. And I think her heart and her voice tells us that women want education and work and they're willing to use their activism to shout about it.
1: Well, maybe just with, with that in mind, I was thinking a little bit more about your comments earlier about education and women women in school or, or whether they're going to retain that opportunity or not. Well, we hear preliminary reports that the Taliban are allowing elementary school girls to continue to go in school and to some degree it's int- the interesting question is are the mothers sending them to the school are the mothers interested in getting those girls a primary education and are those are they taking advantage of the fact that that space is still open and are you optimistic that's going to ret- you know that's going to remain the case or is are we likely to see a, a retrenchment on that what is your sort of what what's the street saying about 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 uh, that reality
2: we hear the one step forward mantra from the Taliban. I don't see a lot of movement, especially in the provinces of girls going to school. There's some, there undoubtedly is some, but boy, did you just frame the next podcast, Ray. So I can can hear it and see it already. The former minister of education is at ASU, Arizona State University. That's Rangina Hamadi. Ah. And then we have a woman that runs a nonprofit organization. It was originally based in Herat, but has expanded across the uh, many provinces. And that is uh, Sakina Jacobi. Name of her organization is Afghan Institute of Learning, A-I-L. Wouldn't you love to put the two of them together and get a robust dialogue
1: I would take you up on that opportunity.
2: <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna know so much more than I do about education
1: right and what the what the likely scenarios are well maybe just on again on, on this issue of I, I r- remain concerned about the broader treatment of women and I guess I'm wondering what are your your colleagues telling you just about daily lives are women feeling yeah. threatened by the current situation are there instances of violence are they sort of the exception rather than the rule, or are there things that is the imposition of Sharia law now created kind of a, an environment of, of of fear that we're going back to to situations where laughing on the street is a is a serious offense, or is it? Are we still in sort of a wait and see kind of moment?
2: Two stories came to me last week that were heartbreaking. And one came from one of my male champions for the program. His name is Saad. And he had an extraordinarily high, high profile, not only as a champion of women's rights, but also for youth rights. And he maintained that for well over a decade. And he, he wrote to me, actually, I'm going to use his words. He said, I've been running and hiding for weeks a couple of days ago on social media, I was threatened again that I would be arrested by the Taliban. Five armed men attacked our family home. They plundered our home. They brutally attacked my family. My mother and sister were seriously injured with blood pouring out of them. I plead for urgent action. We're dying here every minute. It ha- he was in hiding. So it happened to his mother and sister who were the innocents that had done nothing and had not even been involved in the campaign for women's rights or youth rights. And then a message came from another one of my staff members and I'll use the name Basma for her. And she said, I just, I fled out of fear. She said, I just, I couldn't stay another second. I took a bus south of Herat and then when I got to Spin Boldak, there were no hotels. So I just went on the street like a beggar and I begged a nice person. Could you please take me in just for one night? And then I got close to the border of Pakistan and I decided to destroy all my documents. I covered myself and then I sat in a chair at the border crossing and I pretended to be sick. I watched Taliban beat people. I had a Pakistan visa. I didn't burn it, but it didn't help at all. I had fake IDs, and they didn't help at all. But then, finally, I crossed the border, and here I am. I'm in Pakistan. What should I do next? What do I tell her to do next when she's lost all of her documentation?
1: Yeah, quite the dramatic story. I'm sure there are mm-hmm. probably thousands more of similar Yeah, where you're Driven. to cover your identity and make, make it to the border. Well, so it's, it would seem that sort of there's still, you know, we saw those dramatic images of families wishing to flee the country, you know, 90 days ago, and um, and it would seem that the tide has continued at all the different border crossings, and even out of the main airport, it seems that some people are, are flying out to different places if they're able to get the right paper. What are the major obstacles today to emigration out and immigration to other nations? What, what are people having to deal with in terms of, you know, making that transition, both in Afghanistan and then getting to wherever they wanna go?
2: Oh boy, there are so many obstacles. And and I hope that Seema talks about um, her journey in acquiring the special immigration visa. We all refer to those as SIVs now, so I'll use that acronym. There are problems on so many levels. If, If you look at it from an intern perspective, they might not even be in the SIV queue just yet. They may not have passports. They may not have other appropriate documentation. Money is always a problem. If you can't pay for your flight, you've got to find somebody that can host you. And and that's an issue. Even obtaining visas to other countries can now be problematic with so many of the embassies closed. And if people don't have access to the internet, then they can't do the e-visa. So, Beyond just the issues in-country, if we look at Basma's story, who's now in Pakistan, so what if the intern and the staff get to another country? There's likelihood of no onward-bound assistance. That would require visa clearance. It also requires support, financial, housing, clothing, especially if it's cold, like it is right now. In my neck of the woods, I've got snow already. And of course, food. So there are lots of levels of support and obstacles and barriers that exist for anybody wanting to immigrate.
1: So I know you're very active in in doing advocacy on on multiple fronts these issues that we just mentioned. What are the key asks that you and other activists are making to the White House, Congress, and the Department of State right now about assisting evacuation and and helping people that made contributions to all of these USAID and state-funded programs?
2: I'm not alone in this ask, that's for sure. And and I'm not alone working on the issue. You know, Chemonics International has a wonderfully dedicated group of volunteers. Rachel Rakulia and I started the GoFundMe. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And then of course, there's a huge group of activists, many groups of activists, including my network, Women's Regional Network, and, and we come together in like-mindedness. We have seven specific asks of the Department of State. But I, I think today, let's just focus on the top two, because these are critical. Others we can address one by one later. But if we don't address these two, we're not going to see the movement that we need for Afghans. First is to expedite the SIVs with a surge effort, and I mean a huge surge effort, both here in the United States for making it more streamlined and as well in the third countries. So with that in mind, the second ask that I have is to partner with those third countries for onbound safe passage and for the embassies in those countries to help with the processing of the SIVs so they actually can move. There's there's so much that we can do together and we know we know that our country can do this. If we have the political will and we have the forward movement, it can be done. The good news is we have we we've been seeing some forward movement. It was exciting to see Ambassador Beth Jones come back to the State Department to lead this effort. It's also great news to see Karen Decker back at USAID to lead the CARE effort. So there's some movement. We just need it to be surged faster, better, cleaner, more organized, transparent.
1: So maybe just staying with that, for people, individuals, and communities that are interested in maybe doing work on behalf of this this question, what sorts of you know solidarity makes sense and what sort of what are the best advocacy targets and perhaps maybe areas to access for potential impact in other words if they want to kind of you know get behind what you know your seven your seven asks where should they be sort of focusing their their attention in terms of solidarity with the broader afghan community and also with the advocacy initiatives that you're you're engaged in that's a super question
2: so you know we're just coming up now on 16 days to end gender-based violence. And I flipped my campaign to focus on Afghanistan. So it would be 16 days and 16 Afghan stories. So along the lines of your question, we have three key things that we're focusing on. One, donate. I already mentioned we have the GoFundMe, Friends of Afghan Women in Government. Two, amplify. We have to share these stories so the media spotlight stays on the Afghan crises. So one and two, and then three brings us to advocate, pick up that phone, send an email, call your elected officials, ask them to safeguard Afghan women at risk.
1: We'll, we'll, we're, we're going to be sure to note that in the in the way we put out this podcast, um, how and how people can do that and how they can connect with your GoFundMe page. Maybe just a, question as you're engaging around the US government on these questions, what is your sense of degree to which the the United States government might normalize relations with the Taliban anytime soon? Or is it going to, you know, and even if it didn't normalize, can you imagine it actually providing humanitarian assistance in the face of perhaps Mm -hmm. a looming food shortage, which we're hearing about, we're starting to hear about in the news now. It's beginning beginning to break and, and it's often the winter months that are the roughest in the in the remote areas of afghanistan what do you, what do you see in terms of the us government being a humanitarian or even moving toward normalization
2: normalization well oh, that's a scary word this is such a huge political quagmire and and it encompasses not only the usa but also our global community and and we know that i'm not a political expert so I'm much more an on the ground grassroots development worker. In general, my personal opinion is that normalization will be a long, very long protracted process. And, And Ray, you bring up the most important thing here. We can't take our eyes off the humanitarian crises. No matter the politics at play, we must be aware of the human cost at stake as we move into the winter months. I think that the US will have a role in the humanitarian crisis. We've seen UNAMA come out with a statement recently, UNHCR came out with a statement recently. So as the global actors come together on decision-making, I really think that the world will do the right thing in stepping up to help Afghans surmount the humanitarian crises.
1: And as we know, I think the UN is still there in, in large measure. So they are. those agencies, so that will be the probably the mechanisms through which this aid will be provided. I think so, maybe, so
3: too.
1: So maybe one final question, Suzanne, as you look back on your years of work with Chemonics, what do you hope is a legacy of that work? And and do you see, maybe just going back to this question, what do you, do you, do you see the potential for it, it enduring beyond recent events and transforming the country in ways that uh, right now we probably can't even quite imagine?
2: Yeah, I think I would divide that question in, in into two aspects. I have the dream and then I have the hope for a legacy. The dream is that the women's rights stand and that it becomes an expansion of what they're claiming. So it becomes an expansion of leadership roles, access to education, a voice in women, peace and security processes, but you know, holistically robust, fulfilling lives. That's my dream for Afghans. The legacy, (laughs) that word, that word feels like such a huge word sitting on my shoulders, but perhaps over my decade of working with Afghans, the legacy was the main change in expectations. And now, the demands that I see youth and women making.
1: No, That's great. Wonderful. I'm now going to take an opportunity to turn to Seema. So Seema, I'm, I'm pleased you could join us. And as I understand, your transition to the US has not been an easy one, and as, as has been the story with many Afghan refugees over these last months. And I know people you know, listening to Suzanne's comments and, and all of what's you know, going on in the country would be keen to kind of hear your story in your own words. And maybe you could just begin by sharing a bit about yourself, your family, your work in Afghanistan before your departure and you know what was your work at you know at home and what was your home life like before you actually left the country.
3: Hello and thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to be here and talk about this important topic. My name is Sima, and I was born on October 1987 in Afghanistan. I have a bachelor degree in business administration, and I have worked with many national and international organisations, organization, including Communics International, under direct leadership of Dr. Susan in Oman in government project. Yes, before I came to Afghanistan, we were a family of five people: me, my two sisters, and my parents. We were all together, and you had a good life.
1: You now are obviously, you've moved, I think, to the United States and to Washington, D.C. I'm wondering, when the possibility of a withdrawal had been rumored in Afghanistan, were you preparing to, with the idea of leaving the country before the Taliban arrived at Kabul? Or how did that all unfold for you?
3: So, just the way you said, the U.S. military withdrawal was a rumor. But believe me, no one was ready to accept this, and everyone was thinking that no, at the end, the U.S. administration and the world would do something for Afghans, and they will not leave Afghans the way they lived. And they were thinking, no, they will change the decisions, and they will not Taliban to take control of Kabul. So that's why we were so relaxed, and we we were happy being together and continuing working and studies, and about. Planning of leaving Afghanistan, no, sir. At that time, my family was having no plan to leave Afghanistan because my sisters were studying. So. Just the way I told you, we thought, no, there really something good will happen at the end and Taliban will not be able to take Afghanistan. Even about our own military forces, we couldn't accept that these forces will one day leave the provinces and cobble the way they have left and this nightmare happened.
1: So once it was clear that the Taliban were really advancing on Kabul and they were moving quickly, and as you said, the Afghan military sort of dissolved rather quickly and, and left their posts, what, w- what were your initial reactions? What was your response and what did you begin to talk about?
3: Sarah, so I do remember this was 15th of August. I was in office and suddenly my supervisor came and told me, take your computer and leave because Taliban entered to Kabul. So I was shocked just like a statue because even on that time sir we were thinking that taliban it will take at least three months for taliban to take cover even that days so i was shocked and my first reaction was sir, that no. now what will happen to me to my family and to hundreds of other male and female who have worked with u.s military and the U.S. government, and they are still in Kabul. So what will happen to us? This was the first thing that came in my mind, sir.
1: And so, you know, this idea of leaving your homeland is obviously for any family an enormously big decision. And what was the conversation in the family that actually brought you to the decision to actually finally leave? What really was the kind of deciding factor in the decision to leave?
3: Sir, you know, it is it hurts a lot to leave your country. And especially for me to leave my parents, my dad and my mom, in mouth of shock, in a, bad, very, in a very bad situation. So for me taking decisions to leave Afghanistan and leaving my parents, cause like, that I couldn't take them with myself. You already, I, I'm sure you have already heard about the situation in Afghanistan, and especially during those days that I have left. So for me, leaving my country, leaving my parents on those difficult situations alone, that was a very difficult decision. But at the same time, I had no control to the situations. I was helpless and I had to live the way I lived.
1: So, once you decided that you were going to go, what did you need to do to ensure that you could be evacuated either alone or and or with other family members?
3: when I received the evacuation email before that, uh, it was about fifth or fourth days of Taliban arrival to Kabul. and we were in unknown address, not in our own address, from the first day. Taliban came. So when I received the email, on that time, I had my visa as well, because I I got my visa from U.S. uh, Embassy in Kabul just 15 days before Taliban came. I had my visa, so I took my sisters, and just the way I instructed in the email, we have taken some food, and we left for airport. That was very difficult, but as per the email, this was our responsibility, sir, to enter to the airport. So, yeah, I have taken, I have taken all my documents, my PII information, and my visa, and, and I took my two sisters and left our address to the airport.
1: Well, when you got to the airport, it was, there was a lot of chaos around the airport. How, did you actually, how were you able to actually get into the airport itself?
3: Yeah, sir, that was the biggest issue and we had to meet to the airport. We had no other option. So what I did, sir, I took my sisters, I had all my documents at the, base, at the same time, sir, a fear of uh, showing my documents to, to use military, because there was too many people, unknown people. So what I did, sir, I tried a lot, but I after facing too many difficulties, sir, and too many crowd was there. So finally, I got a chance to show my visa to one of the military, U.S. military. And that U.S. military was just like an angel. So after seeing my visa, he helped me and my sisters to enter to the airport.
1: Ah, so you got a little bit of help there, as you say, from a guardian angel. You're in Washington now, and are you with your sisters? And are you with your parents as well? Or are they still in in Kabul?
3: Yes, I'm in Washington, sir. But, sir, I couldn't bring my parents because my father was unwell and old, And my mom was supposed to take care of him. So that's why my mom and dad was not able to face the difficulty we have faced behind the gate of airport, sir. So, no, I left my parents, and I have taken two of my sisters and came. Now I'm here with two of my sisters, sir, not my parents. They are still in Afghanistan.
1: And are they doing okay so far?
3: Sir, they are not all right, and... Nowadays, they are just experiencing the worst days of their life because they are alone, sir. The situation is too bad, sir. It is dark, everyone. And they are, they are very hopeless and helpless nowadays in Afghanistan.
1: So w- once you were flown out of Kabul, where did you end up going? Did you go right to the United States or did you go to some intermediate country along the way?
3: No, sir. When I left our home to the airport, we waited in Afghanistan airport, sir, for two days. After that, we moved to Bahrain with U.S. airplane. Then we waited in Bahrain for one more day. After one day, day, we moved to Washington, D.C. Then in Washington, D.C., sir, because my sister was on parole visa, Then they were supposed to go to the camp, one of the camp and go through process of migration. So from Washington DC, we moved to Texas in uh, Fort Bliss, Dono Ano Camp. And we were there for two months. During these months, my sister gone through interview, biometrics, medical examination, and completed all the process. And at the end, we came to here, sir.
1: And so what is your situation currently? Do you have housing and a job? Or what, is the, what, is, what are the circumstances you're currently facing?
3: Sir, so now we just rented a small apartment here. We are so excited to be here. It is good. About the jobs, that I have started applying for different accounting jobs and I got some calls from some employers and recently I had an interview for um, for a position with Communics International as well. So hopefully one of them will show me a green signal and accept me.
1: Uh-huh. So we will we'll have to hope that, that that's a success in the near future. Thank you. So um so currently, you know, on the ground in the country, one hears that the banks are closed and there may be food shortages. Are your, Is your family experiencing any of that? Are they, are they able to get currency and are they able to get adequate amount of food?
3: Sir, the situation, was, situation in Afghanistan is bad even than this. Yes, the banks are closed. Even those banks that they are open, sir, getting cash from this those banks is near to impossible because you are able to only withdraw $200 per week, but after staying in a long queues for a long time. And even said, said, yes, there are many people they have worked for many years and they have saved their money in the bank. Now they are having said, as some second year family and they need money. Even those family are not able to withdraw money to treat, for treatment. This is same with my family, sir. And yeah, there is, the price are increasing day by day. The shortages are there, sir. People just started selling their house stuff, sir, to provide food for adults even there are many people they have to start selling their one child to provide food for the rest so yes the situation in afghanistan is like just like like black and black for time being
1: so sima maybe as a as a final question for you if you were to sort of share one thing that you'd like our listeners to take away from your story what might that be? What And what can they do if they've got an interest in helping people like yourself or your, your family members in Afghanistan today? What's the one thought you'd want to leave, and what advice would you give us about how to be helpful?
3: Sir, so one thing that I'm, I want to tell you is that there are still a lot of people, including my parents, that they, their family or their self that they have worked with U.S. military or U.S. project and they had a great contribution in their success, but they are still in Afghanistan in a very bad situation and they are not evacuated yet. So please, we all need to just do something to save their lives cause their lives are in danger.
1: Well, see, I can't thank you enough for being kind enough to share your, your personal story. And I think we all uh, probably share concern about the wel- welfare of, of the Afghan people, and particularly your, your father and mother, as you uh, try to, in some sense, one day reunite with them, hopefully in the United States. I'm afraid I have far more questions than I have time. And unfortunately, we're going to have to end our discussion here. I think it's fair to say that this has been a truly eye-opening discussion, and I hope our listeners will come away with a reignited passion for bringing the issues of Afghan women, and particularly refugees, to the forefront. I want to thank you both for your work, your passion, and your willingness to share your stories with us today. If any of you out there feel at all called to help empower the women of Afghanistan to evacuate to safer situations, please consider donating to the Friends of Afghan Women in Government fundraiser on GoFundMe, the link to the fundraiser will be in the show notes for this episode. You can find more episodes of the Global Pathways podcast online at pulti.nd.edu backslash Global Pathways podcast, where you can stream and subscribe to a variety of different platforms. Thank you for listening. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and I'll see you next time.
0: Additional support for the Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser comes from the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs, home to the Pulte Institute and other global institutes, centers, and programs. As Notre Dame's first new college or school in nearly a century, the Keough School places development at the heart of global affairs. Learn more at nd.edu globalaffairs.